Hello and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ellie. And me, Ben. And what have we got coming up in today's episode? Well, I just want to pre-warn you all that there will be a little bit of a rant because we came back from work this last week to find the only very large tree out the back of our house in the middle of being felled. I'm really, really sad. Yeah, we're Have sad, a bit angry. We're going to talk about it and what we've lost, but we're also going to sort of do an impromptu episode about the wonders of planting trees. And we're going to give you some advice on how to protect trees in your own area and how to go about picking a new one for your garden too. Yeah, all the things that we can all do to help prevent those the loss of trees in our gardens and also to put new ones in. We're also going to be airing the second half of the interview with Helen Bostock, which you heard the first part of last episode. And then I'm going to be talking all about the Acer Campestra, or the field maple, which is this week's plant of the week. One of my favourite trees again. Everything is one of my (laughs) favourite trees. But it works well, because this is an episode about trees now. (laughs) But let's go on and talk about our sightings first. Yes, what have we seen? We actually talked about the the Hornet Mimic hoverfly last time, and we had one in our own garden, which was really nice. But I think probably the best spot, well, this is actually something you did. Ellie was watering a big compost bay, weren't you? And the water was splashing off and a robin came down and had a shower in the actual splash from the hose. It was amazing. I couldn't actually work out what it was doing to start with. In fact, it wasn't using just the spray. It was it was sort of diving into the euonymus that I'd just watered obviously getting itself wet with the rubbing the itself ju- on all the leaves yeah and then coming out and fluffing up like they do when they've been in a bird bath and then it realized where the water was actually coming from and just actually came and sat underneath that my my fine hose it was just amazing yeah you showered a robin <laughs> <laughs> next step one is going to eat from my hand that is my my life aim <laughs> well surely yeah feeding one's less intimate than giving Washing. it a shower <laughs> God, <laughs> make me sound weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, up at our allotment, we've seen green woodpeckers, which has been really yeah, nice. Yeah, both times we've been up there, one's done a flyby with its uh, characteristic cackle. Yeah. I'm not going to do an impression of that. Go on. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Ben's face. I wish you could see it. Yeah. Anyway, moving on swiftly. I also saw a rat, actually. It wasn't on our allotment, but it was on one of the alleyways, which, um, well, we probably should do an episode on rats at some point in the future. I like rats. Oh, yeah, so do I. You used to have fancy rats, didn't you? I I did used to keep rats, yes. They're they're wonderful creatures as pets. And finally, we also saw, um, sort of, I guess it's quite late season now, uh, dragonflies. Yes. Seen a few hovering around. Did you work out what it was? I'm, no, I'm really rubbish with dragonflies. I, I'm pretty sure that one or two of them were common darters, which was quite good to see. But then we did see another one, which I do not know. And actually, I didn't... You could just say anything and I would believe you. I know. Well, thing is, at the beginning of the year, I said that I was going to use this year specifically to learn about dragonflies. But for some reason, we just haven't seen that many. And I don't know if this is a, a thing across the country or if it's just where we've been but it's not been so good for learning them well it's been dark and cold and And i don't know if they are around but they we just don't see them flying most of the day yeah but it really has been noticeable yeah we've seen far fewer this year than yeah than in a normal year they're hiding from me they don't want me to know (laughs) (laughs) 
moving on from our sightings, let's just let's just do the rant. Come on, let's get it over and done with. Yes, we are on a terrace. Think Coronation Street. That's basically where we live. Out the back, people have varying degrees of wildlife-friendly gardens. Some have lots of plants in their gardens and occasionally a tree. Some just have concrete slabs and so on. But in one garden, a couple of doors down, actually the terrace behind us so we can see their garden, they had a great big horse chestnut tree. Yeah, absolutely dominated the the landscape. Really did. Huge. Now, oh, actually, this was on, was it Monday or Tuesday this week? So I was in bed not doing anything because <laughs> we had an impromptu day off because we had no fuel so we couldn't actually go to work. <laughs> yeah, um, so there I was, was enjoying, a reason for it. <laughs> yeah, I was enjoying my lying. And then I just heard the sound of chainsaws. And after about half an hour or so, I realised it was out the back, ran round and the whole top of the tree was already gone, which was really sad. So I ran straight back to my computer and in Nottingham City, uh, I don't know about the, the county, or or in other councils, but they actually have a, an interactive map where you can look up all the trees which have something called a tree protection order on. So I quickly dived onto that and looked up, and sadly it wasn't under a TPO. So really there was nothing I could do. And it's really heartbreaking because this tree we know is where all the blue tits and the goldfinches would fly into. It's where the blackbird would sit and sing. It will be home for thousands of different Um, insects and moths or the invertebrates which in turn provide the food for the blue tits and the other birds that come into the garden it's just a disaster because there's nowhere else on our street that they can go there's a big conifer on one side and that is good winter shelter and the birds do go into that but it's less of a home for well, actually, moths and things in their adult stages will hide out there during the day. Yeah. Um, but just in terms of a deciduous tree, all the species that would be attracted to that now have nowhere to go because there's just nowhere else on the terrace for them to Do go. You know, as we've talked a lot about this since it happened on Monday, uh, but you just talking about it now is just making the rage rise up inside me. Oh my goodness, I actually held off going out the back and and seeing the destruction until I think I had to put the bins out on Friday morning like you do and that's when I saw it and it was just so stark like what used to be a beautiful treescape is now just bricks yeah oh my goodness okay I need to calm down yeah like well let's play devil's advocate just for one moment this tree I think it was probably about 50 years old it wasn't it was big but sweet chestnut sorry horse chestnuts grow pretty fast and I reckon, because of where it was, it was right against the wall. I reckon it was a kid who's come home with a conker. Or a squirrel. And planted it. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking about a squirrel. We do have squirrels come into our garden, but there's no nearby horse chestnut trees anywhere else. So unless there were nearby horse chestnuts, which have been felled in their own right, I think it's likely to be a, a kid who's planted it. So we're not talking about some really ancient tree. The other thing to say is that it was really badly hit by a, a particular pest, which is called horse chestnut leaf miner. And this is a, a micro moth. It's a moth that's only about four millimetres long, something like that. And they lay eggs into the leaves. And these 
eggs turn into caterpillars and they actually munch their way through the inside of the leaf. They're so small they can do that. Yeah, a, a pretty much all of the UK's horse chestnuts have been really hit by this. Well, it's only miner. just getting up into Scotland. Oh, okay. Sorry, Scots. Yeah. You've yeah. been moth-free until yeah. now. Well, it's expanding from its range. It's, it was probably it's a native moth to southern Europe, which is where the horse chestnut is, is native to as well. But somehow it's got into the UK and it's spreading. And it does look quite unsightly. So what happens is the leaves come out on the, the horse chestnuts and they're green. But then the pupa of this moth are in the leaf litter underneath. And as soon as it warms up, the adults emerge and they come and lay their eggs. And then the leaves of the whole tree turn this sort of brown. It's like the autumn, but, but it happens in, the middle of the in summer. June, July. Now, what can happen with a horse chestnut is if you get this in infestation for one year, it has no damage at all to the tree. It doesn't affect it. But if this happens year after year after year, it can weaken the tree over time. And this has happened now for, well, as long as we've been here, I would say, so five or six years yeah, so so there there might be a good reason to 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 look at the health of the tree overall. I'm going to play devil's advocate in the other direction. We're having a bit of a debate here. There has been evidence that some birds, like blue tits, have started becoming aware of these um, pupae uh, in in within the leaf. Oh yeah, pupae? No, it'd be the larvae, won't it? And that they're actually starting to predate them, but that's obviously going to take a while before yeah. it has. Yeah, a that's true. Effect. But the 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 leaf miner itself doesn't affect the health of the tree. It's the fact that it becomes weak, and if it's weaker, it's more prone to other things like uh, horse chestnut canker, which is much more. Serious. Um, it's a bleeding canker, I think, that they get, which which it, which will damage the tree, and that can make it sort of unsafe to be around. So and to I feel better, look... we could assume it already had canker and we just hadn't noticed. <laughs> well, I had a look at the tree surgeons that were there and these people looked like they were a professional firm. You would Arboriculturalists. Hope, yeah, you would hope they gave them good advice. But again, it's, a, it's the homeowner's decision if it's not under a TPO, so it was down to them. Oh, and the other thing is trees can damage foundations. That is true. It does happen even at my dad's house. One of his, um, he's got these sort of outhouses, barns. They're being damaged by a really large cherry that is growing next to it. it that, that is true. It does happen. But in this case, it was nowhere near the house. So we don't think that's the case. So yeah, there might be good reasons, but we think the real reason is just that this leaf miner is causing a mess. Because yeah. it drops brown leaves everywhere. Yeah, I actually had one of our very nice neighbours, who I do like a lot, come up to me afterwards and say that they were really pleased that the tree was gone because of the mess it makes. And this is something that is repeated a time and time again. We even had someone just this week, a neighbour of one of our customers, who was complaining about berries being dropped from our customer's garden tree into their own yard. A rowan. A rowan. And... I just feel like it's all part of this mentality that the outside is somehow the same as the inside of your house and that it needs to be as sterile and clean because otherwise people think it's like it's dirt, it's bad, as opposed to it just being the outside where things like this just happen. And that's what makes me so mad. I think there's there needs to be some sort of distinction between the outside and inside where people don't panic about a leaf falling on the ground. <laughs> that's right. And the reason we are concerned is because we, well, we have actually seen this time and time again. Like plastic grass sickness, which is what I call it, Yeah. tree fear is infectious. It is an infectious sickness. And what happens 
is one person says, oh, this tree's causing a load of mess, I'm going to take it down. Three doors down, maybe this big conifer that we've got, which is the last big tree on our row, they might be looking at this and thinking, oh yeah, God, they must be getting more light, they must be getting whatever, you know, it must be causing less mess, maybe I'll get mine taken down too. Oh, and God. then they get it taken no, down. And I really it, hope this doesn't happen. Yeah, well, we have seen whole streets... That where this has happened you know one person gives the others the idea and it's basically like a, a mental green light they just sort of think oh it's okay they've done it so yeah. i can do it and the, it, it goes all the way down the street and exactly the same thing happens with plastic grass you know one person does it the next one neighbor thinks oh hey well they, they're not mowing anymore that seems like a good idea i'll do it and then all of a sudden the whole street is gone and there are whole streets that we have seen which are now plastic grass it really is true. So, I'm just waiting for the day that someone decides on inventing a plastic tree, which sounds ridiculous, but to me, that's as ridiculous as plastic grass. Well, we is. saw it in London. We were down in London to go down to Chelsea, and there were loads of not plastic grass, but all the florists had plastic displays all outside, and so did a load of the the big hotels. It's just mad. Yeah. Anyway, so that's really sad news, and we are really worried about the other trees in our area. But if anybody else out there is facing the same sort of thing or you've had uh, a tree felled near you, I thought we'd just sort of say how worried we are. But there are things that you can do about it, which is what we're going to go on to now. Yeah. Well, first of all, Ben mentioned the TPO, which I think is Tree Preservation Order, not Protection. But I might have to just double check that. What we're actually going to do is, particularly with this conifer, it may or may not work, but we're going to look to have a TPO put onto this tree to protect it and that is something that all of us have the power to do it's more likely to be granted if it's in an area that is highly visible like for example in a front garden where lots of people can see it and it really does affect the look of a street but also I think you can also do it on environmental grounds and particularly in the light of the climate crisis that we're in and councils are really trying to do what's at least looks good in some cases, but at least they're, you know, they're starting to care and, and look up to this stuff a bit more. So that is something that really we can all try and do. Um, the other thing is really simple and we've had this happen to us before where people there's a disconnect sometimes between plants and wildlife and people that say they're really into wildlife just don't understand what effect removing some sort of plant has on that wildlife and we had someone that we work for who loves robins and I had to point out that the robin was nesting in a particular like massive ivy on the fence which that customer actually wanted to be removed and when I pointed out the robin was nesting there it all changed and she was suddenly like oh goodness so have conversations with people if you're already friendly with your neighbours, just casually drop it in, especially if you have that shared love of something like birds. It really does help. At a street level, tying the two together, previous guest and friend of the show, Gareth Richards, he lives on a, uh, a street where he noticed that a load of the trees had been taken down and they hadn't been replaced by the local council. Now, whether or not these were on a TPO, he you know, wanted the trees back. N nearly all the trees that were on his particular street were under the uh, the contract for maintenance, which was being run by the person who does the or the grounds maintenance and things for the council where he lives. Now, some councils, county councils, city councils, do all their stuff in-house. Others subcontract it out to other people. And in this contract, there are specific clauses to say, you know, if you have to take a tree down for whatever reason it's diseased, you have to replace it. So... Gareth actually went and checked this out. So he got in touch with the local council and he 
he actually went out and he mapped all the stumps mm-hmm. that were in his area. He plotted them all onto a map. He sent it to the council and said, these are all the stumps where you have paid, because the council has paid, right? To have them removed. To have No, the council has paid this company a set amount per year and included in that fee is all the things they say they're going to do. So the, gov- so the, the government, the council taxpayers have already paid that money to have these trees replaced. And these companies who are being subcontracted are obviously just taking them down and, and just hoping nobody notices because they make a, a few extra quid. So he actually went out and he plotted all these, sent them to the council, and he's got them all replaced. Yeah, it's amazing. And that's one. the effort of one person has made such a big difference to quite a few streets in Peterborough now, I think. And he's actually started his own campaign as well on Facebook to get other people involved. And one thing that is really uh, difficult for councils to monitor is the ongoing maintenance of the tree. And a tree does take about one to two years to really get its roots down and become established. And in that time, it needs watering. So if you just had, you know, I'm just looking at our street, we could easily, even I would be happy to go out and water a tree you know, once every three days in the summer. I mean, it's not that much effort. And that's that's the kind of initiative that it does take. That's right. And a similar project is being run in Nottingham. There's a, an organisation called Wild NG in Nottingham. And I saw on their website, they, they had a, a video with the, one of the local tree officers who was saying exactly the same thing. You know, they can go and plant the trees, but they don't have the, the resources to go and water them all over a whole city. This tree officer was saying, if you see a stump, do tell us, we will then get in touch with the other people on your street, we might even leaflet the street and say, you know, is there anybody willing to volunteer? Because we will plant, we will pay for the planting, if you offer to do the watering, which I think is a fair trade, really. So there are really, really good tree officers around in councils that want to do the best but sometimes they're just a bit stuck with the contracts that they're under or you know the money that they have but there's no harm in asking do go ahead and ask your local council but then of course it's not just about public planting you can plant a tree in your own garden and there is a tree suitable for just about every garden because even if you really have to you can plant them into a pot Indeed. And actually, uh, as you just mentioned, leafleting to get volunteers to water trees. I've just made a leaflet, which I need to get printed, where I'm going to drop this leaflet into every house on our terrace. And OK, we have we do have the expertise because we're horticulturalists, but I want to offer everyone on our street free planting advice for trees and I'm gonna go ahead and use this winter for anyone even if one person comes back to me and says yes I would like some advice on what tree to put in and they do it I will be a very very happy person (laughs) so any of you could do that as well if you know what you're doing in particular just encourage people to put trees into their garden and really highlight how much more beautiful the place looks because if you go around any sort of what I call you know rough bits of town in wherever you live the the main reason usually why a place looks rough is because there is no greenery and it's really when you start noticing that it's really really noticeable and and quite stark actually yeah it's it's absolutely true and there's been loads of research to say if you have tree-lined streets the average house price is 10 15 percent higher there you go yeah if you own a if you're in a house on a street and you want a bit of extra money plant a tree no it's true (laughs) it is true if you want to plant your own tree at home we are coming into the ideal tree planting time. There are two ways you can plant a tree. You can buy one that's in a pot, which is called a potted tree. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> or you can buy one that's what is called bare root, 
And this is where it's been grown in the ground in a nursery. It's been lifted out of the ground and it doesn't have this big root ball. It doesn't have all the soil attached. The soil is shaken off and it's just sent as literally bare roots on the bottom. And bare root trees tend to be much cheaper. And you also get a larger selection generally. And autumn, winter is the absolutely perfect time to do it. If you're thinking of buying somebody a present for Christmas, then trees make a fantastic yeah, gift. Yeah, that's a good shout. Yeah, I, I definitely urge anyone to do that. Christmas is coming. Apparently, you know, this haulage crisis means that we can't go out and buy all the usual plastic rubbish. Oh no, what a shame. <laughs> uh, so why not go to your local nursery and support a local business and make our air cleaner and provide something for wildlife and the person you're buying for perfect now if you are not sure what sort of tree you want to grow the best place to go onto is the rhs plant finder that's on their website we have a blog on our own website ellieswellies.com and on the blog it's about how to pick a tree that's right for your situation and it goes through all the things you need to consider the ultimate size of the tree where you want interest throughout the year do you want spring blossom or flowering in the summer and so on and then it also describes how you can actually use that plant finder application on the rhs website what to tick because they've got various boxes for perfect for pollinators they've got boxes to tick for an agm which is the rhs's award of garden merit which just shows that a tree is a really good doer and they also, you know, you can pick the habit. So if, if you've got some fairly slim space, but you want a tree to go up, then there are trees that have a what they call a fastigia or a columnar habit, which is trees that grow straight up. But then also you can have broad sprawling trees if you want to hang a hammock or something like that Ooh, on it. That you know, sounds good. Lovely. Ideas for the allotment. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, there's definitely a tree for every space. So we are asking anybody who's listening, do these things that we've said. And just to recap, that's if you know a tree that's out there and you can see it check if it's got a tree protection order the way to do that is to contact your local council and if it doesn't have one apply for one to be put on it talk to your neighbors encourage them to see the value of these trees and not just to see them as mess and then go ahead and plant a tree in your own garden too indeed and we'll put links to anything to help you do any of those things into the show notes so do have a look Moving on from that rant with a positive spin. I think more of that, I'd, I'd have to look at the time, but I would say at least half of that was what you can do. Solutions. We're a solutions-oriented podcast. <laughs> <Are> we? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Um, yes, we are now going to play you the second half of the interview with Helen Bostock of the RHS. So I hope you enjoy. Right, we have just nicely arrived at what is rather beautiful sort of monolith of, of a dead tree. This time, half of the bark, um, that really sort of deep crevice bark that you get on big pine trees, half of that's fallen off to reveal that smooth sort of um, almost silvery mm. uh, inner wood. And it's absolutely pot-marked. It's like a sort of... Um, uh, a severe case of acne but pop out with these little <laughs> holes that perhaps maybe a penny across or mm. a bit smaller and the thing that's made those mm. is quite an interesting uh, creature so it's called the house longhorn beetle <gasps> oh my goodness i love longhorn beetles <laughs> good i'm glad you're a, a, a 
a beetle coleopterist. Yes, me Coleoptophile. too. Yes. Well, this year uh, beetles are our theme for the World About Gardens campaign. Anyway, so we're all about you know bringing back our beetles. But yeah, so we, we're now close up to it and can see it in some detail. So the house longhorn beetle is actually probably technically classed as a bit of a timber pest because in in buildings you probably don't want it chewing away on your um on your you know beautiful oak beams or whatever but this is the only known site in the uk for a breeding population of outdoor beetles so here we we can you know it's we're happy for it to do its thing you know without without worry that was a parasitic wasp that I was just flew say, off as there well. is also other things living in there so there's quite a lot of evidence of um solitary bees and of course they bring in their own parasitoids you know that interest us so you might see other things in there as well but it's not a small beetle it's maybe about an inch or so in length i saw females sort of going in and out of the burrows looking interested uh, just last week but um so if yeah. i stand here long enough i might see you one you might well there goes the rose garden again doesn't <laughs> oh, it yeah, sorry <laughs> we're not going to allow you down there so funny that's really interesting and also it's beautiful as well you know it's a sculpture in its oh, own right it is and i i'm trying to encourage them also to sort of put more logs sort of part in the pond areas as well and i think yeah it can be creative so we're just dropping down now into one of the more open areas and this area was specifically designed to be like a mini garden within a within the garden and um, because sometimes when people come to some of our beautiful RHS gardens the scale just isn't something they can transfer you know or associate with at home I mean let's face it you know I'm I'm lucky to have a big garden but <laughs> you should most see ours of us, you know, I think it, ours is smaller than average <laughs> well exactly and it doesn't have to be a big space to work for wildlife so no. so what we're trying to say in this area we've got a little garden shed with a, a mini green roof on we've got a pond which is big enough for me pretty much to leap over I'm not going to try that because that, <laughs> that will undoubtedly go wrong um, there's a little seating area you know it's it is a little small space that you can say, oh, well, yeah, I, I could do I that could at do home. This. Yes, I, I could put that bench in there. I could put that little log pile in next to a pond and do that flower bed. So, um, yeah, we've it's also looking particularly beautiful because the sun has just come out for oh, the no. first time Perfect. so far. Perfect timing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, so this is, we've kind of come almost full circle around the wildlife garden. The other thing that you just start to get a glimpse of behind there is our... Um, Rothamsted light trap so that's the really long term monitoring uh, nationwide monitoring of moths we have a lot of moths at Wisley (laughs) so it's nice to actually showcase that and have there's a bit of interpretation about it next to it saying what what is it what we're doing there Um, so yeah that that's uh, managed to be retained it gets fed into the 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 nationwide data set that's been going on decades it's amazing it's those long-term data sets on things like uh, moth populations that really start to show us anything that's worrying so such as long-term declines um, but also any you know uplifts in in populations are things that we're doing um, you know collectively making a difference and I think there is some evidence that there are um, but without that data, you know, we, it's just hunches, you know. Uh, that's yeah. why it is so important to, to 
sort of get involved if there's any citizen science type projects yep. or things that you can do. We do something called night safariing at home, which just involves going out with a head torch and looking like a <laughs> bit of a weirdo because our neighbours can see us. But we, yeah, we've uncovered quite a few moths. I mean, sometimes they fly too fast and we can't see exactly what they are. But we did have a brimstone earlier this year, which I know it's really common, but yeah, it's nice we do live in a real urban jungle. So yeah. I was like, yeah, I'm taking that. <laughs> I do gardening in the dark, so goodness knows what my neighbour... Fortunately, most of the neighbours can't see me, but... Um, yeah, it's a perfectly normal thing to do. Very. Have you ever done that with... Have you got a pond? Do you do no, not in our garden. Oh, yeah, oh, I know. Put a little one in. Oh, we should. Because, yeah, shining a torch after dark in a pond is just fascinating. There's so many things that start to come to, to life there, yeah. That's, yeah, that's that would be it. I just wouldn't sleep. I mean, there's okay. just too much to Sorry. look at. I, I won't... <laughs> I won't put that on you then. Um. <laughs> so you've shown me around these beautiful wildlife gardens and talked about sort of the RHS's, should we say, evolution towards uh, or waking up to, to wildlife, if you like, over the years. Do you think there's potentially any conflict between what the RHS, I would say, was more traditionally known as, which is the very mm. almost formal, um, ornamental style gardening. And I know, you know, in the past when we didn't know as much, chemicals were often like wheeled out as a solution to things. Do you think there is now any conflict that that may come up in terms of you know things, insects eating your plants? Mm. <laughs> I think not as much as you might think or might expect. So. The RHS has been around for over a couple of hundred years, (laughs) so it has been going a long time. Um, And the the sort of ethos is to bring the best in gardening to people. Um, And understanding what that is um, probably changes a bit from generation to generation. So, yeah, it's it's evolved. It's gone through different stages. And uh, there is a shift definitely I can feel it you know um, there's a real shift I think in um, approach because there's the okay there's some of the traditional things around um, plants are there for their beauty for our enjoyment um, for what you know what they give to us in terms of their visual impact and that's lasted very well you know um, we've gone through lots of different styles of gardening then there's been a lot about perhaps edible type gardening but In more recent years, our understanding about the additional values that plants can bring, so part of that is certainly their biodiversity, um, uh, what they can support with that, but also just other things like helping to capture pollutants from the atmosphere to cool our buildings, you know, to help mitigate some of the climate change issues that we're facing, those challenges. And I think as we understand all those additional services um, that that plants bring we are starting to to change you know the RHS um, is at the forefront of a lot of that we have a whole environmental horticulture team here at um, RHS science so I I think that 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 is something that we're moving with the times almost yeah you know um, and and as new evidence comes to light that you know that's we can impart that as well and, and demonstrate that. So part of that you mentioned about, you know, the way we manage plants, the sort of, um, you know, how we uh, cope with plants that are getting a bit out of hand, you know, and how we manage pests and diseases. And I think that too is something that we've, is changing. 
So whilst perhaps when I first started in the advisory team, there might have been quite a quite a sort of um, all right, yes, that's a problem. You need to do X, Y, Z to it. Um, that whilst it was never go straight for these sprays, it was always right. What's the cultural control there first, and then now we, we've gone a step further and said, well, actually, what? Is it really as big a problem as you think? And some, you know, it's not to belittle some of these problems. Let's take Japanese knotweed, for yep. example. <laughs> yep. You know, things that actually can suppress other plants and can suppress wildlife. You know, they're doing something which is, you know, not not good for us, not good for the environment. So, so there's definitely a case to be made for where you need to control something. But is there is there an option? Um, can you grow plants in a different way or grow the right plants that are better adapted so they're not as vulnerable? Um, research obviously goes on with breeding for plants that show resistance to things and we're getting more and more uh, non-chemical alternative controls for gardeners. So so I think there's never a s- one fix, I think. No. Uh, and we do always encourage people to sort of stop, think, you know, what is it you're trying to do do you know what you know because i remember when i first started uh, sort of giving advice to gardeners some people say well um well i sprayed it with this and I, well you don't actually know what it is you're spraying yeah. you, you you're seeing a symptom but you haven't necessarily got to the bottom of what is it that's causing that so you might be using completely the wrong product so you know that it's 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 all about education really yes. on that side um i was going to say so. going back to your constant communication about the findings of the plants of bugs like that's the main thing there are a lot of gardeners in the world and a lot of ears to get to aren't there so i think yeah it takes a while for these things to trickle down i think yeah. we said that in that we did a live stream last week and i was just saying how it, it seems quite endemic in gardening that myths and things can be spread very very quickly so it's part of the sort of battle or ongoing role of the RHS to yeah just to kind of counter that as much as possible yeah which does take yeah. all of your effort and all of the team's effort and things like that well, I can we've see got that. a lot of information online we try to make sure that that's um, balanced it's fair that it's inclusive you know that it tries to take into account that sometimes there are some problems you know it's um, that the gardens face but we're definitely shifting towards okay is there a preventative? Is there, you know, a way around this that isn't so uh, impactful on the environment yep. or on our or our, our wildlife to begin with? Um, so Great. yeah, there's there's a move. And quite frankly, when when we're in an era with a president called Keith Weed, you know, we, we've, we've got to move. You know, we've got to make some changes, haven't we? You know? I did love that when that happened. <laughs> As did I'm sure everyone else. Like, yes. What? No. That's amazing. <laughs> yes, the evolution of the RHS. <laughs> That's quite telling. <laughs> and finally, Helen, do you have your top three tips for wildlife gardeners out there? Okay. Well, I, I don't know all the tips that have gone before me. So no, we don't, to... mind. we don't mind repetition. That's absolutely fine. Okay. It means that Let's important. see if I can be original or, or not. <laughs> okay, my first one is a nice one. Um, slow down and stand still because that's that's how we learn best in my opinion I love that about wildlife when you're just walking through things you don't see other things that are moving but if you're stood still 
everything that's moving around you suddenly comes into focus and you will start to spot things animals using your plants in ways you didn't know like we've talked about before or something you know landing on that flower that you can't recognize so that makes you curious about oh what is that you know so yeah it's it's a real let's slow down you know have a cup of tea or a glass of wine (laughs) whatever your drink of choice is most wildlife will be pretty happy to be active around you so yeah um it it makes for very slow walks if you uh, go with a walk with me but um yeah certainly in the garden i think that's my first tip second one would be if there's something in your garden um that's just like working overtime for pollinators because i have a bit of a soft spot for pollinating insects um clock it buy more of it or propagate more of it and tell your friends about it so that's the second one third one garden for you as much as for wildlife because I think we can get on a bit of a guilt trip about oh, am I putting the right thing in did I do that right is something damaged you know it's, we, we get a little bit uptight about it but wildlife gardening should be fun if you're going to keep at it, it needs to be fun and it needs to work for you. So if you want to try a plant that, okay, doesn't have a logo on it saying it's good for bees, go for it. You know, just shove it in and see what happens. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a tiny bit of selfishness there. Yeah, the <laughs> nice. <last one. laughs> yes, no, we always say that as well. Like, there are good and excellent things you can put in, but unless you like looking at it, you're not going to look after it and it's not going to give you the enjoyment and get you out there to you know into your garden and and enjoying it so yeah, yeah important very important that and one. there isn't there isn't one blueprint that you have to follow the joy of wildlife gardening is that we're all doing something different and that diversity is what wildlife loves you know we're all creating different space you don't have to go with the joneses you can do something different yeah so, yeah have fun Excellent. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful and, and lovely to be taken around the wildlife garden at Wisley as well. Thank you very much. A pleasure. <laughs> Have a good day in the office looking out onto it. I will. I will. <laughs> wonderful. And I just want to say another great big thank you to Helen for coming out and meeting us at Wisley and giving us such a a wonderful interview and if you want to keep up to date with what Helen's up to we'll put a link to her profile on our show notes. Before we go on to our native plant of the week we are just going to do a quick thank you to all the people who've given donations to the podcast. If you haven't already donated we have a GoFundMe page called Get the Wildlife Podcast Some Gear and the reason why we have this page is because all the equipment that we need for the podcast is quite expensive and we're hoping over the course of this podcast for the audio quality to get better and better and to be able to get out and interview lots of different people in their own gardens we decided on this podcast that as long as people are donating we're never going to take sponsorship so you won't have to listen to a sponsor's message and we've been so lucky that about two-thirds now of our total target has been met wow i didn't even know that yeah we've actually raised nearly a thousand pounds Wow. Yeah, um, of our 1,500 target. 
We're really, really grateful for all the donations that we've already received. So thank you very much to all the generous bods out there. Yeah, that's right. Once we hit that target, you won't have to listen to us asking for any money for the rest of the year either. That's a good <laughs> <There's> an incentive. <laughs> that's a good incentive. Once we've hit this target, we will have some ongoing costs for the podcast hosting. But we sort of decided that this is our form of volunteering isn't it really yeah yeah we give up a bit of work for doing this podcast because we really enjoy it we're also learning loads ourselves but from all the feedback that we're getting from you guys and how much you're all enjoying it and finding it so useful and inspirational I think that's my that's the thing I get most excited about when people get in touch to tell us that they've been inspired to do the same things that we're doing that makes absolutely everything worth it so yeah this is our form of volunteering and we're going to keep doing it basically until we run out of stuff to talk about there'll be a link to the show notes to that GoFundMe page so let's say thank you to the people who've donated over the last couple of weeks. Thank you to Russell Hartwell. The Shula family. Hi, Erin and Andy and everyone. Hello. Thank you to Mrs. CSV Lee. Thank you, Joe Quirk. To Lucy Claxton. Nikki C. And to one other donor who gave privately as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We're really, really blown away by how generous everyone's been, so it's really making a big difference. Two-thirds, I can't believe that. So I get to do the native plant of the week this week, and we have chosen something that is looking particularly beautiful at this time of year, and that is the Acer Campestra, otherwise known as the field maple. A highly, highly underrated tree. Extremely underrated. I do not know why we don't see it in more gardens. It's been granted the AGM, the Award of Garden Merit by the RHS. It's such a good tree. Acer, in Latin, is sharp pointed or piercing and that refers to the shape of the leaves of most aces because i never knew that no it's good isn't it so the acer campestra is known as one of the most handsome native trees for autumn color but just to go through how it looks throughout the year so you'll get some small yellow green quite inconspicuous flowers that emerge at the same time as the foliage in spring and in the summer the leaves are dark green and to, just to describe the shape of them, so they're botanically known as palmate, which essentially just means like a palm, like your hand. And with the field maple, you get three to five, actually quite blunt. So I know I said the acer term described sharp and pointed, but the, the lobes, the three to five lobes on the field maple are actually slightly blunted and they're also slightly toothed as well. They're smooth on the upper surface and they're slightly downy on the underside. But at this time of year, if you look around for a field maple, they turn the most wonderful, beautiful, buttery yellow. And then once the yellow's gone over, they turn into like a rich, rusty orange brown before they fall because it's a deciduous tree. Yeah, people often buy aces, Japanese aces, various different ornamental types for their autumn colour and look over the field maple but yeah. the, the autumn color is as beautiful as any that you can buy if you can put it in a spot that gets particularly like autumn low sunlight coming through the leaves it really does shine up your garden it looks like it's sort of on fire with yeah. this yellow it's beautiful 
And at the same time as uh, as it's starting to turn, you also get pink-tinged winged dry fruits, which are also technically known as samaras. And they hang from the stems in clusters. And they basically consist of a pair of seeds with, with the very typical wings that you see of other acer species, like the, like the regular maple. And the sycamore too. Exactly. And if you're into it, the bark is also very attractive. So once its leaves have dropped, then it's it's basically like a light brown and it's sort of finely fissured and corky looking as it ages. So it's quite a beautiful tree in its own right when, when the leaves are fallen as well. Yeah, aces in general tend to have really, really interesting barks, don't they? They do. And you can expect over about 50 years, it's quite a relatively slow growing tree. You can expect the tree to get to about 12 metres in height and with a spread of about four metres. But that can be kept under control, as I'll explain later on. And it can live for a whopping 250 to 350 years. It's pretty good going. It's native in the UK and across most of Europe, from Sweden to Spain, and also to the east, to Western Asia and the Caucasus. And also you'll find it in North Africa in the Atlas Mountains. It's a pretty common tree in England and also eastern Wales, whereas in the north and in Ireland, it's it's slightly rarer, so you're less likely to see it in Scotland. But it has very much been introduced into different places as well. That would be like the Gelderos we talked about previously. You know, it's got a native range, but then it's also been planted all over the place. So it's difficult to work out where it's actually native and where it's just yeah. a, a sort of an introduction. Exactly. In the wild, it's usually found on calcareous or base-rich soils, and that just means that this is soil that is not acidic and it's got a very, very particularly high pH. And you'll often find it in woods, scrub and hedgerows. It's in fact often found in the understory of ash or beech woodland. It's also known as one of the first trees that will usually colonise chalk grassland. And as I said before, it's been very much planted by humans, probably because of how beautiful it is. And you'll often find it in amenity areas, in farmland, along roads and in hedges, and also in old coppice. And you will find it growing up to about 380 metres in altitude as well. So not at the tops of mountains. Lowland plant. Lowland, indeed. The timber from the field maple is actually one of the hardest and densest of all the European maple species. Now, my ears pricked up at this because I have got a bit of a confession to make. I'm a Morris dancer and I have a particular... <laughs> dirty secret. Dirty secret. I have a particular fondness for sticks because we do dance with sticks and we're always looking for perfect wood to, to get a stick, you know, out of. <laughs> Our um, house is full of sticks. <laughs> you it's think like, we had a dog here. No, it's don't. like the house, if like an eight-year-old <laughs> child had their perfect house. Well, now Just I've got all to... the special sticks of the different types. Now I've got to look out for a field maple stick because I think it would be very, very good for for bashing. But anyway, that that aside. <laughs> <laughs> However, because it's quite a small tree, relatively, and also relatively slow growing, it's not often used commercially, despite the the, the strength of its wood. So now you might probably find it mostly being used for traditional woodcrafting, like fine engraving, ternary, and also a bit of cabinet making. And apparently, um, in, in terms of cabinet making, it can take a very high polish. Lovely. So yes, that's what you're looking for. And as I said, it was traditionally coppice to produce the wood. And this is also quite interesting. It was also the favoured wood for harp making. Lovely. Mm, because Lovely. of its strength, I guess. And the sweet sap in the spring can also be tapped. 
which can then be used to make wine or syrup. But if anyone does fancy doing that, please do check with landowners and also make sure you know what you're doing and don't accidentally bleed the tree dry, which can also happen. I can also say bothering to do that. (laughs) You've got to have a lot of... I don't know if it would have been a great use for furlough, actually. (laughs) Yeah, tapping trees. Tapping trees, because we've we've done some birch sap tapping to make wine and... It wasn't that great. It wasn't. It was, it was completely very pointless. Ty- very typical homebrew, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's got something like, what is it, like 0.2% sugar. So you have to put loads of sugar and raisins and all sorts of other stuff in it to make it taste of anything anyway. so Yeah, it's yeah, it doesn't have its own natural flavour. No, life it? is too short for, for tapping <laughs> trees, I would say. <laughs> anyway, in the medieval period, it was also believed that if a field maple branch was passed over a child's head, then it would relieve witchcraft from their souls. <laughs> That's useful to know. Yeah, if there's any parents out there. A particularly unruly child <laughs> and also in terms of medical uses Culpepper, the famous 17th century herbalist used to also believe that the bark and the leaves possessed qualities which would strengthen the liver so he very much recommended i think it was making a tea from it we do not condone that we're just giving you some information but historical uses aside i think let's move on to now the juicy stuff that is the sexual antics of the field maple so the field maple is monoecious which as we've seen lots of other plants this means one house so you're going to find both male and female flower parts on the same plant and the flowers appear in May, June. And as I've said before, they're quite inconspicuous, around six millimetres big. They're yellow-green and they're also cup-shaped. I'm going to have to look very closely when I next see one in flower because I've not really noticed them before. I can't say I've ever seen field maple flowers. No, we're going to have to go out and look next spring now. And they're held in clusters. The structure of this cluster is known botanically as a terminal corymb which we'll put a link up to the actual a drawing, maybe, of, of what that looks like. Lovely. C-O-R-Y-M-B. Corimb. On the surface, the flowers look like perfect hermaphrodite flowers. And this is just the term that botanists use to describe flowers that have both female and male sexual parts that are both functioning. But in fact, with the field maple, they are functionally unisexual. So you have one or the other. For example, take the flowers that have working stamens. So that's the male sexual parts. And those are the parts that are producing pollen. They have been found to have a rudimentary pistil, which is the female sexual part. It's basically there, but it's just not doing anything. It's not receptive to any pollen. Whereas the flowers that have a functioning female sexual part have been found to have immature stamens with green, hard and non-functional anthers on very short filaments. And also, it was quite interesting, I didn't get too much more detail about this, but some studies have shown that individual trees can actually fruit quite erratically. So year on year, you might get more or less uh, female flowers, which is the part that obviously will be producing the seed eventually. And in some years, you might get a whole tree only producing functionally male flowers, so they will not go on to produce seed themselves. After they've dried and ripened in late September, the seeds with their wings are very much designed to be carried away by the wind. So that just means that the seed will then travel further from the parent plant where it's less likely to compete with it. So what eats the field maple? 
Now, the trees are a really important understory component in lowland mixed deciduous woodland. And that particular habitat is listed as a priority habitat for the UK Biodiversity Action Plan. Not just because of the maple, but because of the whole assemblage of plants and creatures that use it. Saying that, the field maple does also stand out on its own as being a fantastic plant for boosting biodiversity. For one, it's a really, really great plant for aphids, which means it provides a really important food source for their many, many predators, like all the birds, all the other insects and invertebrates, and in turn, mammals. Now, loads and loads of mites feed on Acer Campestra as well. And this is the order known as Akari. And while we normally gloss over these really tiny creatures, I thought it'd be good to just just explain them a little bit because they're about 14, I think, listed as using the field maple as a food plant. So Akari is the collective group name for all mites and ticks. And that order, so the order Akari, sits in the arachnid class. However, they're actually much, much more diverse than spiders. It's just that we don't see them, so we don't talk about them as much. And within that group, gall mites are a really distinctive family of mites. And these are really tiny plant feeders. They're usually only about 0.5 millimetres and they pierce and feed on individual plant cells. They're so small, they just they can pick one cell of a plant to actually feed from. And when they've done this, so they've pierced the, the skin of the, the leaf, the surrounding plant cells get bigger and they also multiply, which is what forms a gall. And a gall is just any sort of growth that you, abnormal growth that you find on all sorts of plants. You, I mean, the most, I think the most famous one is probably the robin's pincushion on a rose, which has a really distinctive, quite a large shape with lots of like fuzzy spikes coming out of it. But in general, the galls are, are much, much more visible than the tiny creatures that cause them. Actually, I really enjoyed reading about this because last year I was out for a walk with a friend and I found a sycamore leaf that had fallen prematurely and it was covered in these tiny red sort of finger-like pustules, if you like. They're bright, bright reds and they're about two millimetres long. And I now know that, that was probably caused by a gall mite, which is really good. As well as the mites, we've got quite a few beetles that feed on field maple. We've also got a lot of flies, that's the diptera, a staggering 27 true bugs, or the hemiptera, some sawflies, and a whopping 43 moth species. So that's a lot of biodiversity for one tree. The seeds, those samaras, are actually also eaten by birds, something I did not know. And mammals like wood mice and bank voles will also feed on them as well. Mm, sure. Haven't got loads of information about pollination you know, in terms of the species that actually do it, but... I know that it's a really, really important nectar source and pollen source for bees and hoverflies. And actually, funnily enough, Helen Bostock, who we interviewed, wrote an article on the RHS website about how good this plant is for pollinators, which is one of the reasons why it's been awarded an award of garden merit by the RHS. So how can you grow it? Now, first of all, this is a tough plant and it is suitable for a really wide range of soils. It's tolerant of drought. It's really tolerant of air pollution. So if you've got a front garden that's facing onto a main road, why not try a field maple? It will cope with inland wind exposure, also soil compaction. However, I have to say it does not really particularly like salty winds. So I think we're going to have to do some coastal plants in an upcoming episode just, just for balance. Yeah, you're right for all those seasiders. Yeah. While it tolerates drought, it does prefer a moist but free draining site. So don't try planting it somewhere where it's always dry. 
and definitely don't try planting it in a bog because it just won't be very happy. As well as being tolerant of a lot of different situations in a garden, it's also really versatile in terms of the form it can be grown in, which is what makes it such a great tree. So it could be used in your garden as a specimen plant, which is just gardening speak for a tree or a plant in its own, you know, on its own as a as a focal point in your garden. A tree you appreciate by itself. Exactly. And in terms of it being a tree, you can either choose it to be a multi-stem tree. So it's it's got quite a shrubby habit anyway, but you can actually have multiple stems coming up from the ground or you could grow it as a single stem. You could also have it as part of a native hedging mix and it does cut really, really well. Yeah, it's often just shoved in those mixed hedging packs, isn't it? Yeah, and as I said, it takes pollution. So if you've got a front garden, like I said, maybe have a field maple hedge around your boundary. You can also topiarise it if you're looking for a more formal form. And I've also seen online people pleaching it, which is which is basically where you have a number of field maples in a line. And then at the very top of their single stem, you separate out two branches at right angles to each other. So you form a sort of... It's a hedge, but it's a hedge in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ben. On a clear stem. <laughs> a hedge in the sky. I was struggling for the words and Ben's rescued me. Yes, and it is another really formal way of growing it. And what I also learned was that it's a fantastic bonsai tree. So for all of you bonsai fanatics out there, why not try a field maple? I love bonsai to look at when we're at you... a gardening yes. show or something. But <laughs> I've never been inspired to actually be bothered to have a go oh i give you 10 years before you change oh, your mind no some of their some of their bonsai there these shows are like 100 years old or something yeah it's a i don't have the patience long for that ter- long-term yeah. project well actually if you are going to bonsai it there is a dwarfing cultivar which is called microfilm which is particularly good for bonsaiing so maybe look that one out so if you want one in your garden you've got a number of options as to how to get hold of one For the patient amongst you, you could try growing it from seed. So round about now, go out and collect some field maple seeds. You need to wait until they're properly dry and ripe before you actually sow them. And just pop them into some seed and cutting compost. Leave it outside, perhaps in a cold frame if if you're expecting a particularly harsh winter. But it does actually need the cooler winter temperatures to germinate. If you don't see a seedling the following spring, don't panic this one can take quite a while, sometimes over a year. So just keep it watered and hopefully some of those seeds will germinate. You can also try layering existing field maples. And we've talked about this before and we will put notes in the show notes as to how you can do it. But essentially you take an existing field maple and you bend one of the one to two year old branches down to the ground and fix them in place. And over the course of a season, they should root and then you've got yourself a new tree. Yeah, that's obviously an easy one to do if you've got sort of a multi-stem that's growing close to the ground because otherwise it's... Yes, harder to bend a tree trunk. I don't think that's (laughs) going to happen. You can also take softwood cuttings, and this is something I am particularly fond of doing because you get lots of free plants. Um, And you do that with the field maple in early summer. But again, I'll put a link to how you do that exactly in the show notes for any of you cutting fanatics out there. If you want the quicker option, you can, of course, go ahead and buy it from any reputable UK grower. And this is one that really is available from many, many different people. So have a look online or at your local nursery. That's right. I'm going to press home why you should definitely buy from a UK grower. 
and check that it doesn't it's not just uk sourced you know you're not buying it from a uk nursery but it's actually been grown in the uk because we're you know very concerned about um, pests and diseases that um, can come in on imported plants and there's absolutely no reason to be buying an imported plant when it's completely native to the uk anyway exactly one other thing to say as well because we were talking about planting all sorts of trees into your garden, is that the field maple can be pruned in the autumn and winter, but that's also true for lots of our native trees. So if you've got a small garden and you want to grow a beech or a hazel or even an oak, then all of them can either be uh, coppiced, where you cut them down to the ground, or they can be pollarded, where you cut them higher up in the air. So you know, if one of these trees is getting too big, then don't get rid of it. You can just in late autumn or winter or depending on the species you want to do it in August, you can just cut them right back and they just are absolutely fine with it. They just regrow the following year. Yeah, that's right. And this one can take quite a lot of pruning. As I said, it can be used in a hedge, which obviously you'll be cutting fairly regularly. If you're going to go ahead and buy one, there are actually quite a few different cultivars to look out for, depending on where and what you want your field maple to be doing in your garden. And really usefully there are quite a few that have been bred to be more upright and that is really useful as Ben said earlier if you've got a small garden because you then don't take up as much of it with a tree canopy and the ones to look out for in terms of uprightness are streetwise and that one has also got really really great autumn colour so that's a particularly good one but also look out for elegant and also a Dutch version called Elsreich. 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 I'm sorry, Holland. If you, Ellie used to work for a Dutch firm, but your oh, <laughs> Dutch my, didn't come very far, did my, it? <laughs> my pronunciation leaves a lot to be desired, it has to be said. There's also another cultivar that actually, when the leaves come out, they're bright, bright red. So it looks particularly good in spring, as well as having the autumn colour. And that is called Louisa Redshine. That one is a little bit wider in its canopy. It's not as upright as the other ones I've just mentioned. But as I say, it does have more season of interest. And does that one also turn yellow in the autumn? Yeah, has all the same regular field maple traits. So Mm. yeah, definitely. That's a nice one. I'll try that somewhere. Indeed. We'll pop all of those cultivars into the show notes so that you can go and have a look yourself. And I do hope that someone out there is inspired to plant a field maple in their garden. Yeah, lovely. And if any of you have been inspired to go ahead and plant a tree, then please do let us know. Get in touch on Facebook or on Twitter, or you can email us, thewildlifegarden at hotmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and we'll keep a running tally of our listeners tree planting over this autumn and winter. In the next episode, we are talking about hedgehogs. Oh, yes. We've not covered many mammals yet. No, it's been lower mammals, hasn't it? It has. I'm very excited about that. Yeah, and if you want some homework before we actually get round to that episode, then I encourage everybody to go ahead and look up uh, Pam Ayer's poem on hedgehogs online. Go ahead on YouTube and have a look and a listen. It's brilliant. And the episode after that, we'll be looking at our book club, and that is Pollinators and Pollination by Dr. Jeff Ollerton. Again, links in the show notes. So all that leaves us to say is keep exploring your gardens. Bye. Bye. Bye.